Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You may be seated. If you would, with your bulletin there with the text before you, I want you to think briefly, and hopefully this won't take you long, but think of a few things that you are afraid of that are causing fear in your life today. What's troubling your soul? What are you fearing? Jot them down. Jot them down. What do we do with our fears? Fear sometimes is is completely unnecessary. I I, I try to act like a very, very tough teacher at the beginning of the school year. Uh, And uh, when I do, sometimes those very um, careful students, particular students, they get concerned right before that first test. They're afraid. Oh my God. Goodness, what is Mr. Shellnut going to have on this test? I'm scared. And some of the more diligent ones might even try to pull an all-nighter, making sure they've studied every conceivable question that Mr. Shellnut might ask. And then they get there, and they get to that first test, and they really figure out, I'm a pushover. And it, it's easy. There was nothing to fear. Sometimes our fears are unnecessary. Sometimes our, sometimes people are foolishly not fearful. You know, you, you've seen the pictures of those tourists in national parks and they're wanting to get a good photograph up and close to wildlife. Oh, look at that buffalo. Wouldn't it be fun to get 10 feet away from it and have a picture taken, you know? Or, or, oh, look at that mama bear and her cubs. Aren't they so cute and sweet? I'd just like to get a little closer to one of those cubs. Are you nuts? Right? Good. Good. And Jihau would not get close to that cub. And that mama bear wouldn't come after him. Sometimes we're foolishly not fearful. Sometimes we're used by fear mongers. Think of the person who's sitting there before his television screen too many hours a day, and he's got it on his favorite 24-hour news station, and whatever it is, he's got talking heads, and maybe it's better put screaming heads, he's got screaming heads screaming at him all day long to be what? Be afraid. There's something out there that's going to bring destruction. And that destruction's going to befall you. 
They all do it, no matter what side of the political aisle they find themselves on. They all scream to be afraid. Sometimes we're just used by fear mongers. But at other times, the fear is it's honest and it makes sense. It's an understandable feeling. I want you to jump down in our text today to verse 16. Our text is from Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 16. We looked at verse 2 last time. Our focus will be on verses 3 through 16. But I want you to jump down at verse 16. Hear the prophet. The prophet has heard the Lord. The prophet knows that the Lord is going to be using the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to bring devastation and to discipline His people Israel. But nevertheless, this is what he says. I hear and my body does what? Trembles. It quakes. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He knew the Chaldeans. He knew the Babylonians. They were coming. He knew that they would be instruments in the hands of Yahweh to bring discipline upon the church. He knew that they would come in devastation. Invasion and devastation were right around the corner. And his body was quaking. He was a real man. He wasn't one of these sort of folks who says, yes, that mighty army, they're they're terrible and they've done all kinds of other things, but I'm not afraid of them. I've got everything together. I'm strong, I'm valiant. No, he's a real guy. He's quaking in fear. And I'm so glad that the Bible presents to us real people. Because I'm often this way. My suspicion is you are too. Here is Habakkuk's understandable and honest fear. He has no stiff upper lip. He's not a Brit. No stiff upper lip. No, his lip is doing what? It's quivering, it's shaking because he's afraid. And here, in his fear, in the midst of this prayer song, we see something of what will take us from fear to rejoicing. In the last verses, we'll look at those next week, in the last verses of chapter 3, we have rejoicing. But how do you get there? Let's read the entirety of our text. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, or as we say in Georgia, Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hands and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague, followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and on your chariot of salvation? 
You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Christ is risen. risen The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. On one of our trips to New York City with Nadine, we had an opportunity to visit the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You know, it's this amazing place. They're really in Central Park. And if you're a museum type of person, you know what I'm talking about. If you've seen it or if you've been there, if you've seen anything from there, just an amazing museum. I, I particularly enjoy the ancient Egyptian section. I mean, you didn't just have small artifacts there. You actually had a real Egyptian temple, an ancient Egyptian temple in that building. It's like, whoa, how did they manage that? How did they get that here? But they did. I particularly enjoyed that section. I also enjoyed some of the great paintings that are housed there, paintings by Monet and paintings by Van Gogh. And you know, you see them in books and you say, wow, that's, that's nice. But to see it up close, ooh, wow, it's amazing. But what really caught my eye on that trip, we didn't have a lot of time. And as we made our th- rushed our, rush through uh, just a few of the exhibits, we were coming out and we were coming through one of the new exhibits with some more modern art. And I'm, I'm walking through there, I'm not paying particular attention to a lot of things until I see it. It's this huge canvas. And it's probably six foot wide, probably ten foot high. I mean, just massive. And from a distance, you could tell it's, it's clear as day. It is. It's a face of a man. Uh, I believe his name is George Close, the artist. It's a, it's a portrait of himself, of his face. It's like, it's like a selfie, huge selfie. And then as you get closer and closer, and then you get real close, you recognize that that photorealistic portrait painting was just a collection of thousands and thousands and thousands of little dots of paint. He, he was doing his own pixels. I mean, just a dab of blue, a dab of mauve, a dab of this color, a dab of that color, and all these little dabs of color that when you're looking up close, they're just little dabs of color, little circles of color. But then when you packed away, all those became this amazing image, this basically self-portrait. And that's what 
I think of when I come to this text, to this prayer. That's what Habakkuk's prayer is like. He speaks of God, he speaks to God. He speaks of and to, he gives in the doing, he gives dabs of color all along the way. He speaks of the attributes of God. He speaks of the actions of God. He speaks of past events. He brings those past events into his present. He anticipates future actions, dot after dot, image after image. He's building and building and building. The Lord has come. The Lord will come. Dot of color here after dot of color there. Image here after image there. And when you step back and when you behold it, here is a portrait. A portrait of Yahweh coming in His majestic glory, coming in judgment, and yet in that judgment bringing salvation for His people. It's beautiful. And it is a collage of beauty. And it's a portrait of Yahweh that will help us move from fear to rejoicing. Okay, so let's see how he does it. I hear, verse 16 again, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound of rotten, at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. How will his understandable and honest fear give way to rejoicing? Notice what he's doing in the prayer. In verse 2, we've already seen it. He's focusing upon God. His primary attention is not upon those Chaldeans. It's not upon those disobedient Israelite citizens and fellow church members. No, his focus is upon God. And he continues that focus in this prayer. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Your work, O Lord. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So I think what we're seeing, even beginning with verse 2, but as it fleshes its way out, as it unfolds in the rest of the verses, we are seeing that the way to rejoicing is to have our understandable and our honest fears overruled by a greater fear. To have our understandable and honest fears overruled by a greater fear, a referential fear, a greater fear that recounts the mighty acts of God, a greater fear that reckons with the character of God, and a greater fear that rests in the faithfulness of God. In the faithfulness of God to in wrath remember mercy. In judgment to bring salvation. Yahweh has done it before, and He will do it again. This prayer we see, we see the prophet unfolding for us reverential fear, recounting the mighty acts of God, reckoning with the character of God, and resting in the faithfulness of God. History, glory, and faithfulness. History, glory, and faithfulness can overrule all of your, all of our understandable and honest lesser fears. The first one, history. The mighty acts of God. Habakkuk recounts them, doesn't he? 
And by doing so, he's doing just like the, uh, the psalmists do in the Psalter. When a, when, when a psalm writer is facing danger or when the nation's facing danger, what do you so often see in the psalms? That psalmist goes back and recounts the history of God's people and what God has done for His people in the past, right? I mean, you can look at Psalm 135, you can look at Psalm 136, and those are just two. The psalmists do it all the time. And the prophet is going by the way of the psalmist. There are allusions here in our text to God's deliverance of His people out of Egypt, the Exodus. There are more allusions to God's bringing His people through the wilderness years of wandering and to the promised land. Okay, and, and that is really the way verse 3 starts, does it not? That's the way it kicks off. Habakkuk uses two places, Taman and Mount Paran. And those are like markers of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites of old. Verse 3, God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran of Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was filled with His praises. And then in those wanderings, the grumbling people of Israel, who deserved nothing less than God's wrath and displeasure, they faced enemies, did they not? And what did God do as they faced their enemies? He used the enemies to discipline His people, and then He what? Rescued them from their enemies. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. It's probably a reference to a people to the east of the Jordan. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. God had delivered His people even through those wandering, grumbling years in the wilderness. And on either side of those wandering years, God brought His people through the waters. He brought them through the Red Sea. He would bring them through the Jordan. He is sovereign over the waters. Notice verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and it lifted its hands on high. What Habakkuk is doing in this psalm is giving God's people history lessons after history lessons after history lessons. History, history, and more history. And he wasn't doing so in the way that so many history teachers do it. More dates and more dead people. More dates and more dead people. More dates and more dead people. No, he's teaching it as something beautiful and amazing and redemptive. God is at work and has been at work through Israel's history to bring His people through. It's as if the prophet is saying, do it again, God. Do it again. Deliver your people again. Now I've got to make a little bit of an aside here. Notice one more thing. Habakkuk's faith is rooted in history. Real events in real time. Habakkuk's faith is and our faith is. Christianity is a religion. It's more than that, but it is that. It's a faith that is rooted in history. 
If certain things didn't happen, your faith is futile. Go home. Watch the Three Stooges. Do something else. But if they happened, it mattered. And it matters for you. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 to the church at Corinth? You remember those words. He says, For I delivered unto you that which was of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised up on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Historical events, right? Okay, then what does He go on to say? He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If these historical events didn't happen, then your Christianity, about the best it may do is make you a a pretty nice person, a decent person, a pretty good neighbor. Maybe. It won't save you. Christianity is rooted in historical fact. And the church has professed that from its earliest days, hasn't it not? We, we say the Apostles' Creed, don't we? And what do we have right in the middle of that Apostles' Creed? A connection, a tie to real history. Jesus Christ did what? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. This, this, this thing about Christianity is maybe just being good ethics. That'll only take you to hell. Ours is a historical faith. And the prophet recounts the great redemptive acts of God in history. But then he moves on, doesn't he? Or really interweaves it. What does this history reveal about God? In a word, it reveals His glory. His glory. His majesty. His power. Habakkuk not only uh, recounts the history of God, but he reckons with the greatness of God. If these are facts in history, what do the facts reveal according to the prophet? They reveal the glory of God. They reveal the holiness of God, the splendor of God, the brightness of God, the wrath of God, the fury of God. Of God, I know some folks don't like to hear that, but the fury of Yahweh who controls and reigns over and uses it all. Verse 3 again, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Jump down to verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. As one commentator puts it, 
as Habakkuk faces devastation by an alien army. He depicts the greater wrath and the greater power found in Yahweh's own horses and chariots of salvation. No nation will be able to stand against him when he accomplishes, when he comes to accomplish salvation for his people. No nation will stand against him. Nazi Germany couldn't stand against him. The Soviet Union couldn't stand against him. No nation will stand against him when he comes to accomplish salvation for his people. Habakkuk's history now is bleeding into his present and it's pointing him to a future salvation. And in so doing, he's helping us to look forward too for a great and coming day. Listen to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, describing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In the first chapter, we hear, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then we move towards the end of the book to chapter 17 and we read these words. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on His head are many diadems and He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread, and we don't like to hear it, but hear it, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty and on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The way to rejoicing is to have our understandable and honest lesser fears overruled by a greater fear, a reverential fear, a greater fear that repeats the mighty acts, redemptive acts of God, and that displays the glory and the splendor and the power and the fury of God. It is to say, God, do it again in great power and glory. Can you say that? And lastly, this leads us to something that's implied in Habakkuk's psalm. 
Do it again, O Lord, in great power and glory, for You have promised. And You're faithful. And You're true. Recounting the redemptive acts of God, recounting history, led Him to reckon with the glory of God, which then leads Him to rest in the truthfulness and the faithfulness of God. In all of this that he is describing in chapter 3, what is God doing? He's keeping His Word. Right? He's keeping His Word. Go back to verse 2. Oh Lord, I've heard the report of You. I've heard Your Word. And what Your Word has said is You are going to discipline Your people and You're going to use the Chaldeans and then You are going to judge the Chaldeans. I've heard Your Word. And you're going to do that, and through all that, you're going to bring salvation for your people. I've heard your word. Notice verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And what the prophet is saying in all this is saying, God, you've made covenant promises, and your covenant promises have have been to save a people through a Redeemer. And those covenant promises were made way back to Adam and Eve. You remember in Genesis 3, what did God say in judgment upon the serpent? He says this, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and between the woman. Between your offspring, those who follow after you, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. That's the first inkling of this glorious plan of salvation that God has for His people. Then He speaks to Abraham, doesn't He? If you move forward to Genesis chapter 15, He takes Abraham outside and says, Look up. He says, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then He said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And then you move over a couple more chapters to chapter 17. And what does God say to Abraham? He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Do it again, God, in great power and glory, for you have promised. Verse 13, one more time. You went out for salvation, for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. God had promised to save a remnant, and He would save a remnant even though the Chaldeans would devastate Israel. Habakkuk knows He's going to save a remnant of God's people because from that remnant will come the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ through whom all of God's people would be saved. All the spiritual offspring of Abraham. This is the God that Habakkuk reveals to you. Will you fear Him? 
Will you have an awe, a, a reverential awe of Him that this God is in sovereign control over all things and will use all things for His glory and the salvation of His people through and in Jesus Christ. If that is your fear, reverential fear, brothers and sisters, go back to that list that you made a while ago. Those fears don't have a chance. They don't have a chance. If your faith by grace is in this God, those fears don't have a chance. It can be cancer. Your God is greater. It can be a busted relationship. Your God is greater. It can be your political foes gaining the upper hand. Your God is greater. It can be making an F on your test. Mr. Shelnut turned out to be a tough teacher. Your God is greater. Your fears that can be honest and understandable, they won't be driven out until you truly fear the Lord. But here's the beauty of it all. When you truly fear the Lord, then you're ready to hear what? Fear not. Fear not. Peace be with you. May that be where you are this day. Let's pray. Put all our lesser fears, so sovereign God, in their place. Drive them from our breasts. Give us a true reverence for your glory, your majesty, your power, and yes, your wrath. And enable us to cry out with Habakkuk and say, in your wrath, remember mercy. Turn our eyes to your answer of that prayer. Turn our eyes to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.